This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Fine Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We've got two guests with me local in our Wharton studio today. Bill Stone, return guest. Thank you for coming back to the studio. Um, now the CIO of Stone Investment Partners, as well as Simon Lack, managing partner at SL Advisors. Uh, Bill and Simon, thanks for coming in. Thanks. Thank you. Good to be here. We're going to have a great conversation with Bill and Simon. Um, we're going to have some – Simon focuses a lot on the energy infrastructure. Oil has been a very popular topic of late, uh, and the MLP industry has been one with a lot of interesting developments, and I'm looking forward to getting their opinion on what's been happening in, in oil and commodity markets. Um, before we, we get to them, um, Professor Siegel, we're going to have some commentary, a big employment report day. Yeah. Uh, what's uh, your thoughts on the latest readings? Yeah, I think it's absolutely more the same. The same thing I've been warning about. You know, everyone said, oh, great, you know, that 220, and on one end it's great, but you notice, again, unemployment rate ticked down. Again, that 110, 3.8%. Uh, the uh, U6, which measures a little bit more of the select, uh, uh, ticked down two-tenths of a percent. The participation rate ticked down again, wiping out that whole increase that we had four months ago. All that means more tightening, um, in my opinion. Uh, this actually, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to my four tightenings every quarter uh, this year. Um, and uh, I think this data absolutely um, uh, doesn't confirm it because we still got, you know, many more months to go, but is moving in the direction uh, that will uh, give us uh, those, uh, uh, those tightenings. Um, yeah, the economy is very strong. I mean, listen, there's good signs. Uh, the uh, macro advice, some of the people that I follow that are pretty conservative on GDP actually think that we could very well show a 4% plus GDP for second quarter of this year, which would be really quite uh, quite something. That means between the first and second uh, quarter, first half of the year, we would be above that 3% range, and we haven't been there for quite a while. So, I mean, yeah, the economy's rip-roaring, but, um, again, uh, resources are getting tighter. So uh, higher interest rates challenge to the, you know, the good news on demand uh, in the marketplace. On top of that, of course, I don't have to tell everyone that, you know, the trade tariffs are throwing some more sand and uncertainty uh, into the markets. Um 
you know, I'm not pleased with him, but we've got to we've got to deal with him and hope that there will be a favorable uh, outcome. Yeah, the markets uh, are are robust here today. I guess they're they're taking the the economic news in stride. We had a little bit of volatility earlier the week coming out of Europe. Any thoughts on on the political dynamics yeah. that, that we have yeah. there? And let me, let me also say, I mean, you know, we we you know yields really spiked on that uh, news. I mean, we're you know back up almost to the you know uh, I mean not three percent, but you know we were above two ninety again after being all the way down to two seventy. Yeah, I mean, I think the Italian uh, you know thing is. Is it was really a way uh, overreaction. Um, they're not leaving the euro. They're they're not uh, going to be leaving the EU. Um, you know, uh, yes, there is a popular sentiment there, but this is not this is not a threat of a breakup. And I think we've seen that calm there. I mean, I think that that's not going to be the headline. It made it may delay Draghi's end of QE uh, a few uh, months or quarters. We'll have to see how, how that develops. Um, but I think that, you know, the big news is the trade developments here and definitely the Fed. You know, June 21st is going to be the Fed meeting. They are going to raise a quarter. I I would say as a result of this, as the last labor market report before that meeting, um, you're going to get some hawkish statements that are not going to imply, oh, yeah, we're now going to stop and we'll you know, bypass the September, December uh, rate. Again, we're going to have to look at how things develop, but certainly that, that uh, the, you know, I've been talking about this uh, for months now on our show. Yep. Uh, 200, 200,000 plus is too much demand for our labor market. Um, it does imply aggressive tightening by the Fed. Bill or Simon, any questions or comments from what you just heard? Yeah, I mean, I'm just curious, Joe, when, when you think this will show up in terms of really faster uh, wage growth and, and wage well, we, inflation? we actually had to tick up a little bit now. Don't forget, I don't, you know, the wage that comes out Friday is not the best wage. I mean, the, if you take a look at the employment cost index, uh, which is a quarterly that is more general and also corrected for shifts of employment, um, it is definitely showing a tightening. And, and uh, I mean, the anecdotal evidence is becoming really overwhelming um, in terms of shortages of uh, qualified people in 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 various areas, uh, trucking areas, pilot areas. You you go up and down. Uh, we're getting more and more of that now. You know, I think it's going to show in the statistics. Yes, I agree with everyone that it is surprising. And a good thing that it hasn't really shown now. There's enough elasticity of that supply to give enough. But we need a rise in that um, participation rate if we really want to continue to create $200,000 without tightening the market. And I would love for that to happen, but uh, it doesn't look like it's happening. Another tick down today. The demographics are against it, and um, uh, we need to slow demand. And it's going to be slowed by the Fed uh, raising those uh, short-term rates until we get down to about 100, 120,000. Hopefully, if we get a bump up in productivity, we can keep uh, GDP growth at two and a half and three, despite that lower number. But uh, you know, that's that's yet to be seen. What do you think about the, I guess, the other economies of the world? So, do you think Europe and Japan are slowing enough to maybe take some of the momentum out of ours? You know, it is disappointing. I mean, you know, Europe looked like it had momentum and. It's it's not even the Italian crisis. It had slowed down dramatically, um, which is a big disappointment. Um, Draghi thought he was on you know the right path. It 
really looked like a pickup, and now it's stalled out. I think we need a cup, a quarter or two more. It's also disappointing in Japan um, to get these kind, these economies, and they're even, you know, with the demographics aging, and as you know, Japan and Europe are aging even more, um, particularly the southern parts of uh, of Europe, uh, to get those productivity numbers. Uh, up there um, and GDP up as has really has really been a challenge. Um, so I think they stay at uh, full throttle of, of an ease until they can get it up if they can uh, indeed. But we're in the pace of uh, of developing a very strong labor market, and so we don't we don't uh, really have their problems. We've had. I mean, obviously, slow productivity growth. It hasn't even been suggested, but it's much better than Europe or, or Japan. Uh, and they've got a lot of slack labor uh, we don't have. So, you know, they're in a very, they're in a much earlier stage of uh, the cycle than we are. Professor, while we talked, brought up Europe, um, I know one of the, the interesting headlines of the day, I saw Bill Gross this morning on, uh, on Bloomberg, and I know you and him have, have had some uh, you know, verbal discussions over, over time. And uh, he, right now, in sort of ta- on his European discussion, one of his biggest trades right now is sort of long treasury short boons. He thinks the spread there has become very big levels. But he also sort of commented only one this, – this hike in June is the last hike from the Fed this year. So he, mm. he's got a view on that. Any Any – Quick comments on either well, of those two points. You know, um, you know most of my disagreements uh, with Bill have been much more on the stock market when he's, and I think he ventures out of his area of expertise. And you know, I'll be happy to match my record on on those disagreements yep. with with his. Uh, you know, I think he wrote that great thing, Dow Five Thousand, a few years ago. Um, on the on the bond market, you know, he, he certainly is more astute. He must see a big slowdown um, coming. I mean, if he thinks the last rise is June, he must think that we're going to be going down to 100000 or less on the payroll. Otherwise, I don't see any reason why that would happen. Um, uh, so, you know, maybe he thinks the rate has risen enough. Uh, the Fed is, you know, getting to that neutral rate. Uh, you know, he described the R star, the new neutral, you know, back in 2014 as zero real 2% nominal. The Fed is not quite there yet, but close. So, um, but if they, you know, the thing is, it looks like they're going to have to go a little bit beyond to squeeze some of that excess demand out. So, um, uh, you know, if he's right, it would have to be a big slowdown. Um and, uh, you know, I think the momentum from this jobs report shows that that slowdown is certainly not here yet. All right, Professor, I know uh, you're, you're uh, uh, the office. Thanks for, have, for joining us for some commentary today. Well, thank you very much for having me. We'll, we'll talk again soon. Thanks. So uh, let me just reintroduce our guests here. In the studio, we have Simon Lack, Managing Partners at SL Advisors, Bill Stone, President and Chief Investment Officer of Stone Investment Partners. Um, Bill, you've been a return guest. Uh, maybe we'll just briefly just introduce Simon, a little bit more of your background. Simon, sort of talk about before SL Advisors, we were catching up in, and you sort of have a long history of uh, from J.P. Morgan to some a lot of interesting background there. Maybe just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So I, I was at J.P. Morgan for 23 years. Uh, for older listeners, I started with Manufacturers Hanover Trust, which then became Chemical and then Chase and J.P. Morgan. I went through a lot of mergers and I spent about two thirds of my time in interest rate derivatives trading. So I ran that business as the derivatives market was really uh, taking off. 
Um, and then I switched gears around 2000 and I started a hedge fund business which invested in new hedge funds. So we were sort of like a VC, a venture capital investor in new hedge funds, getting a share of the hedge fund manager's business because that's where we knew the real money was, was in the business of hedge funds rather than being a client. So uh, interest rate trading and hedge funds is my background at JP Morgan. 2009, I left and, uh, and set up SL Advisors. You've written now three books. Do you want to, you want to tell our listeners the, the three book titles? Yeah, The Hedge Fund Mirage, The Illusion of Big Money, Why It's Too Good to Be True, shows how hedge funds have been wildly profitable, and yet almost all those profits have gone in fees to the managers. Uh, bonds are not forever. The crisis facing fixed income investors actually argued uh, that bond yields would stay unreasonably low for a long time, which I think has certainly turned out to be the case. And then Wall Street Potholes, which I wrote in partnership with four other friends, advising investors on securities and investments that they should avoid. Very good. Very interesting. So each of those are, are worth drilling into. But the head fund, hedge fund mirage, um, you've, you've sort of had parlayed that into some other other conversations. What what you know, the general sense was that too many people are chasing hedge funds for their allure, and, and then the only people who get rich are the, the hedge fund managers? Yeah, I mean, what, what many investors missed is that size is a real constraint on performance with hedge funds. And, and typically, investors will look at uh, since inception returns for the index. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to see not just how the very first investors did, but how all the investors did? Let's look not at the average annual return. Let's look at the asset-weighted return. How did the typical dollar do? that was invested. And that asset rate of return or internal rate of return, uh, in fact, showed that um, hedge fund investors made a lot of money in the 1990s when it was a small industry. There just weren't that many investors. And as you got more investors, the returns went down. And, and this culminated in the financial crisis in 2008 when this $2 trillion hedge fund industry was down 23%. It lost almost half a trillion dollars, which was more than all of the profits in its prior history. And so for, for, for in an industry that uh, originally marketed itself as an absolute return industry, I thought that was a, just an incredibly damning indictment. Well, don't you think part of it, too, is they to get the returns, they had to start I'll say chasing market returns, partly because also to your earlier talking about interest rates coming down, a lot of the strategies hedge funds employed benefited from higher yields as well. So I think two of those things also played into it. I, I, think. I think that's absolutely right. And in fact, what really uh, led to the growth in hedge funds was the dot-com bubble, because in, in uh, 2000, 2002, as the dot-com bubble unwound, investors in equities lost a lot of money. And a hedge fund industry that was in those days probably one to $200 billion did a great job. They hedged. They preserved capital. But that was done by uh, focusing on inefficiencies and arbitrage strategies. And by definition, any sort of arbitrage strategy has a finite amount of profit to be made from it. And so the increasing capital coming in forced hedge funds to take more directional bets, to trade more macro, and to go more for beta and less for alpha mm. is what happened. And so given 23 years of background interest rates, uh, just want to briefly comment on what we, where we are today. The Fed's been hiking. The long-term rates have been flattening. But 3% on the 10-year, getting closer to 3%. What, any thoughts on where we are in that whole cycle? I mean, I think interest rates still represent a very poor investment. I mean, if you, if you go back and look at the, the real return on 10-year treasuries going back 90 years, it's 2%. So in other words, a neutral investment rate would be around with 2% inflation plus a 2% real return for. So we're, we're still more than 1% below that. So 
I still think, and, and our business is built around this, uh, you should not invest in fixed income. You should only hold short-term securities. I think bonds are still artificially low and, and represent a very poor way to invest your money. And is that the, the artificially low because of the, the central banks? Is that the thought process? It's partly. It's partly. There's no question. Obviously, the Fed is tightening now. So, But for a long time, between uh, you know uh, very low short-term rates and also the Fed uh, building its balance sheet, you had a, a policy of maintaining artificially low rates. And in fact, in my second book, Bonds Are Not Forever, I talked about this. The financial crisis came about for many reasons, but one of them was too much debt. We had too much debt in the system, and the solution to too much debt is artificially low rates, which effectually transfer value from the savers to the borrowers. And in fact, the United States did that after World War II, and there was an explicit agreement between the Fed and the Treasury to keep rates low to pay down the World War II debt. There wasn't the same explicit arrangement. But the Fed employed the same solution. So I always felt if, if Ben Bernanke had, had got up and said, hey, here's the deal. We've got too much debt, and I'm going to make it, you know, you know I'm going to transfer wealth from you savers to borrowers. If he'd said that, the policies he followed would have been exactly the same. He didn't articulate it that way, but it worked. It was a good policy. Just, you know, why help it along by being a bond investor was my thought. Hmm. So, Bill, now you have overseen portfolios as a CIO of, of major bank here in Philadelphia. How how has this dynamic impacted the advice you gave clients and what you what you think about? Well, I think a lot of it's similar to Simon. I mean, you know, they need income, so you can't completely get rid of bonds. But I think tilting away from interest rate risk, in other words, assuming that not assuming, but our belief that yields move up, and I still believe that. I think we're probably on the same page with that. Uh, it makes some well, it makes distinct sense uh, to watch how much duration, how much interest rate exposure you have there. Um, and look at other places to, uh, to invest, whether that's, uh, in some alternatives and, or I think Jeremy, you've written about it even, uh, I think commodities as well, um, are interesting here, uh, in terms of, you know, I hate to, I don't want to call them a bond surrogate because they're certainly not, but, uh, in terms of trying to, play defense uh, against some higher yields and, and maybe some pickup in inflation. You no, know, it is interesting when you think about that standard 60-40 portfolio, like how much, if you do believe rates are, are rising. Now, at least in commodities, you own some collateral just in the sort of short duration instruments, right? And then you have the futures on the commodities that before were big contango. Now, some of them, at least oil, you've got backwardation. I know we're going to talk talk about oil here on the program. But how, how much would you talk about shifting a 60-40 to some of these other alternatives so we usually you know we had different risk levels so we usually moved it or we're willing to move it 10 percentage points away uh one way or the other so um i think you know trying to control the you know i guess you have to be careful how sure you are of yourself in investments always but at least you know um you add that to some some uh, rebalancing. I think it's a reasonable place to to think about. You don't want to, I think, go all out, replace all your, say, all your bonds with commodities. That's probably, you know, that's a bridge too far, um, yes. especially when you, you have some constraints around trying to, to, to get some income. The other one I should mention, I think that's interesting, is perhaps looking at overweights in financial stocks, uh, because at least as I've been continuing to watch them, they are extremely correlated with higher yields, uh, which makes some sense. As long as the economy is continuing to do pretty well, uh, the financials and, and should continue to – yeah, the banks should continue to trade pretty well. And that has been how the market has been doing. So that's another place. It's certainly, again, not a bond surrogate, but a good way, I think, to add some def- – you know, the opposite defense in there. 
Very interesting. So, Simon, maybe tell a little bit about your current venture, SO Advisors, how you went from the book on the hedge fund mirage to sort of founding SO Advisors. You want to talk about that transition? Yeah. So, so um, yeah, I left JP Morgan after 23 years um, and set up SO Advisors to manage my money. And I had been investing in energy infrastructure because one of the hedge funds that we invested in at JP Morgan was Alarian's offshore hedge fund. So I got some exposure to the pipeline business and master limited partnerships, which I thought was interesting. And so at SL Advisors, I wanted to set up strategies to invest my money. And I thought that was a very interesting sector to be in. And, and, and so the business really grown. Um, I like to think that all of the clients are friends of Simon, but the early clients were friends first, uh, and then they became clients. So the business has really grown through that. So we really specialize in, uh, in midstream energy infrastructure, the pipelines and storage facilities, and, and all of the stuff that moves fossil fuels from under the ground to the ultimate customer. What, a, what an interesting space over the last four to five years. There's been a lot of changing dynamics. Oil has been one of the key changing dynamics. Energy infrastructure is a big topic. Um, so, Bill, you, you were talking about just the fundamentals versus the market prices. Do you have any you want a sort of brief commentary on what, if you looked at just the last four years, when you think about what's been the dynamic and what's been happening in the MLP space? Yeah, so I think what's amazing is just take a step back and think about where we've come, which is – if forget about how the you know Simon talked about the MLPs, the master limited partnerships, how they traded. So if you didn't know, good, put that out of your mind and just think about what's happened, which is essentially we've become the U.S. will, I guess you know Simon was saying by maybe the end of this year, become the largest producer the of year. oil. Yeah, within the next year, um, we're already essentially call us the Saudi Arabia of oil. Who would have thought that you know four years ago? Suddenly you're here, but then if you look at how MLPs have traded. Uh, since September of 2014, the end of September, I calculated it, they're down 34%. Um, the S&P 500 is up 48%. So that swing is, I mean, it's mind. I mean, you're thinking about what an amazing change took place. You would think you'd be rolling in money uh, in the master limited partnerships that were part of that you know, growth, but you didn't see it. And that, to me, is an amazing topic of conversation. And it's a good stage setting for this conversation. So, Simon, I mean, the fundamentals have been strong. We've got – we're going to be the largest producer of oil next year. What's your, your sort of investment thesis on why you're focused on this category and and just sort of the current dynamics with the this sort of down – this 80% spread between the S&P and – and an MLP index. Yeah, I mean, it's been huge, and it's been very, very frustrating for investors. But there's this most fantastic success story, which is the American shale revolution. And essentially, it's taking us to energy independence. We're already a net export of natural gas, and as Bill said, we'll be the world's biggest uh, crude oil exporter by the end of next year. And the shale revolution is not something that's happening all over the world. The porous rock from which we get oil and gas exists in a lot of places but it's a quintessential American success story. And one of the, I think one of the coolest stories is when you look at OPEC, which in 2014, U.S. production was growing, OPEC was losing market share, and they decided to take on the U.S. shale industry and drive them out of business. And they decided to do that by allowing the price to drop to levels that were ruinously low and bankrupt this fairly new industry. And the shale industry turned around and innovated furiously and used technology and found many, many ways to be more productive and just did what America does. I mean, if you want an example of why this is the greatest, most dynamic economy in the world, you just look at that because 40% of the world's oil production lost. 
And in, and in September of 2016, two years into that effort, OPEC found it too expensive. You know, almost every OPEC country was running a budget deficit because of lower revenues, and they switched gears. And when they did that, they conceded that American oil production was going to grow, that America was going to energy independence, and it's America's form of capitalism that basically made that happen. And as I said to you before, I tell that story to investors all the time, and I love telling people how proud they should feel to be American and be in this country because obviously this isn't where I grew up. I brought my accent with me from, from London, right? But it is a great story. And so that disconnect has been very frustrating, and investors uh, often say, okay, how come if it's all so good, how come I'm not making more money? The difference is that these MLPs, these mass limited partnerships, were in the habit of paying out all of their cash flow because for many, many years in America, we used the same amount of energy roughly from the same places. We didn't need new pipelines or infrastructure. And with the Shell Revolution, we did. And these businesses that historically paid all their cash flow to income-seeking investors wound up reinvesting some of that cash flow in growth projects, great NPV decisions, bad if you're an income-seeking investor, and they frankly, um, you know, betrayed those those early investors. But the opportunity has been created because of that, and that's what people are focusing on. It's, it's an interesting, you know, we on this show talk a lot about the productivity paradox. Like, where is productivity? You hear all about these advancements in technology. Where is productivity? It's great. It's a great example of where America's productivity is uh, is shining through on this on this oil it's side. It's a fantastic story. It really I mean, is. wouldn't you say too? Like, it's really become. You know, people used to think about you know the crazy oil guys or whatever. You know, it's a technology game too, and the, and the U.S. dominates the technology around it, energy it, extraction. It really speaks to a lot of our strengths, and and so the sort of stereotypical oil man is a guy in a hard hat wrestling one of those drilling bits. But in fact, he's just as likely to be sitting in front of a computer terminal remotely guiding a drill bit using GPS technology from 10 miles away. I and thought it was so, a cowboy hat. It might be a cowboy <laughs> hat. <I think. laughs> so, I mean, there's so many advantages. We've got the, we've got the existing infrastructure, the labor force, uh, technology, a whole culture of, of uh, new business formation. But what very few people appreciate is privately owned mineral rights. And we all take it for granted in this country. You know, you find oil in your backyard, it's your oil. And that is not the case anywhere else in the world. In other countries, the government owns that. Hmm. And the fact that it's privately owned allows landowners individually to do deals with drillers, share the rights, share the economics. The community makes money out of that. Imagine if the government went into somebody's backyard and said, oh, by the way, we said we're going to start drilling here now. And so the Shell Revolution really does epitomize all of the things that make America so successful economically. And it's happened because we've got all the right things in place. So talk about the pricing dynamics of what some of that drilling, this fracking is doing. So for people, you know, there's the the, the oil price has been, been rising. Um, mm-hmm. Natural gas is, we're at sort of this low natural gas price. Maybe talk about some of the dynamics there. Well, one of the uh, big differences between shale and conventional drilling it's shale is what's called a short cycle project. So with a conventional oil and gas project, think of something where you've got to spend hundreds of millions of dollars finding and identifying the resource and many, many years of production after that. And you can't lock in the price because the futures market goes out for two years. So a conventional project, big upfront outlay, and then you're going to do all kinds of say analysis and what's GDP going to be and production costs, and you've got oil price risk. 
With shale, it's less than $5 million to drill a well. You get very high initial production. You get your money back within less than two years. You can hedge that risk out. What that means is that a short-cycle project is a less risky project. And that's a huge advantage. It's not just that we have low break-evens. We have less risky projects here. And that is one of the reasons why investment in conventional oil and gas projects is down dramatically over the last five years. And, and I think that there's a case for steadily rising crude oil for just that reason. So it's not just that break-evens are coming down in the United States because the technology is still evolving. It's the short-cycle nature, which is another huge advantage for shale drillers. Is it easy to describe what that break-even generally is, or is that a number that's just so all over the map? I mean, of course, there's no one number, right? It varies enormously, yeah. and you get, uh, and it depends on whether you include, uh, you know, general and administrative expenditure as well on top of that or not. But at the lowest, you'll see firms say that they have ten to fifteen dollars a barrel break-evens, right? And you'll see numbers all the way up to, you know, the current price of seventy dollars, and and if the price of oil goes up then there'll be more projects that become profitable. So it's really sort of, it's not a discrete point, it's a, it's a continuum, but it's coming down. It continues to come down you know, quarter after quarter. We're going to, need to take a short break, but we'll be back. You're listening to Behind the Market on Sirius XM 111. We're talking with Simon Lack uh, and Bill Stone. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, head of research at Wisdom Tree. I've got in the studio Bill Stone, chief investment officer of Stone Investment Partners, Simon Lack, managing partner at SL Advisors, talking about MLPs, energy infrastructure, oil, all the dynamics happening in these markets. Um, and so, so, Bill, with the first part of the program, we, we framed, you know, you have an equity bond mix, 60-40, and so maybe you should think about alternatives. And how, how do you think this category of MLPs should even be considered as part of this global portfolio setting? How would you recommend, you know, thinking about these this category of investments? So that's a great question. So I like MLPs in the sense that a lot of the clients that I dealt with were, are uh, high net worth or ultra high net worth individuals. So the key about MLPs, I'll try and do it quickly, though I don't give tax advice, and I know none of us do, uh, I'll give you the quick and dirty is the distribution uh, and right now, I th- the yield is a, almost 8%, I think, on the MLP index. Um, so that yield, about 70 and sometimes 100% of that is not taxed. So um, it actually ends up being return of capital, uh, which lowers your tax basis of the security over time. But in the current, it's not taxed as income. Um, so for high net worth individuals at a high tax rate or those that want to hold this for, I'll say forever, and eventually get to step up when they die mm-hmm. and to give it to family, whatever. Um, it is They are amazing for that, just for that purpose. It's not you have to do a K-1. There's, there's also things you have to know about that. Um, but that side of it makes them attractive. Now, the thing you have to keep in mind at the end of the day, and I think this is what came clear and and Simon hit on some of it is you know some things went horribly wrong in the industry as a whole um, but also they're energy related so as you saw a lot of things with oil prices coming way down for a while here and then there's all these things with the growth um, that that we could talk more about um, they became correlated with energy prices, which a lot of people were saying they weren't at all. Um, some A lot of it was self-inflicted wounds. But at the end of the day, you have to be careful how much you own because you do have this, you know, at least it's it's going to be 
it's part of the energy infrastructure, energy complex. So um, that's at least the way I think about it. Um, but I think also if you're careful or, and you're watching a little closer what you own, if you're going to own specific ones, I think you might be able to do a bit better on uh, um, perhaps – getting to survivors and hopefully ones with less self-inflicted wounds. That's a, an interesting starting point for the conversation of how to think about using it. Um, certainly, if you're talking about oh, how you own things is going gonna, is gonna to matter. Now, now, Simon, you do you build indexes. You, you run all sorts of different strategies. We can't talk about specific registered products. But if, if talk about your index that you created and sort of the, the concept of how you created an, uh, an energy independence index and how that might compare to the traditional – MLP-type indexes that are out there? Yeah, so the American Energy Independence Index is a broad index that reflects all of what's going on in energy infrastructure because a couple of things are happening. One is that MLPs are becoming a less important part of the sector. MLPs have a narrow investment base. Basically, you've got uh, older, wealthy Americans who want income, who are the buyers, and there's a whole uh, cadre of institutional clients out there who are generally not going to buy MLPs. And so You've seen a lot of big MLPs converting to be regular corporations so that they can access bigger pools of capital. And so the American Energy Independence Index is designed to reflect everything that's going on in energy infrastructure. Uh, So it includes a lot of the biggest American corporations in that sector. Um, It includes Canadian companies. Uh, It has a few MLPs, uh, but only 20%. And it's all focused on midstream. So it's not companies that are drilling for oil and gas. It's the pipeline owners. It's the storage owners. It's the, it's, it's the infrastructure that moves the crude oil around that does have that sort of traditional toll model. And I think that's where, honestly, that's where the world is going is to that broader representation of the sector. Now, now you were talking about uh, sort of how you, you include your hedge fund mirage lessons into this. And so you have sort of an interesting way of including those those type of companies that are the sort of general partners, the guys who benefit from running these types of funds. Maybe sort of talk about that sort of offshoot of the, the sort of GPs and the difference between uh, traditional MLPs. Sure. So, yeah, this was an insight that uh, actually my partner had several years ago is an MLP is a partnership, and most partnerships have a general partner who basically runs the partnership. And we figured out that they look, MLPs look a lot like hedge funds or private equity funds who also have a general partner who runs them. Now, of course, MLPs don't own stocks and bonds or private equity. They own physical things like pipelines. But that relationship between the general partner and the fund itself or the general partner of the MLP is a very good analogy. So in the Hedge Fund Mirage, my book on how hedge fund managers had basically taken all of the profits in fees, very clearly the hedge fund manager or the hedge fund GP is the place to be. That's where enormous wealth has been created. And similarly with MLPs, MLP general partners are where the management teams invest. I mean, it's quite amazing. When you look at public uh, companies where they have the GP and the MLP both, uh, both traded, management teams overwhelmingly, I mean, by 25 to 1, will invest in the general partner. So if you want to be aligned with management, you want to buy the general partner. And so the American Energy Independence Index reflects that because we invest in general partners in that index or the index holds general partners, and it doesn't hold any MLPs who are themselves controlled by a general partner. Mm. So it's, it's, uh, it reflects some of our best thinking on the sector. And so most of the other indexes will include some of these 
this uh, this pool that has these incentive incentive pools. Yeah, the incentive distribution rights, which are basically the fees that the MLP pays to the general partner. Yeah, we're the only index that has no uh, MLPs paying out those uh, IDRs, as they're called, incentive distribution rights. We're the only index that, that avoids those. So the only MLPs we own in the index are ones where they don't make those payments out. And, and so it's much more pro-investor in that respect. Bill, you, you know, you've thought about MLPs for, for a while, and, and you've, you know, any, any thoughts on what, on what Simon's doing? No, I mean, I think it sounds great because it's – so the interesting thing is that somebody might – if you're just coming to it and you don't know much about it, you might say, well, why would have anyone have ever invested anything with these incentive distribution rights? Well, Simon hit on it earlier. Well, part of it was the original investor base wanted income and growing income. So part of it was you could sit down and say, well, since – general partner has these incentive distribution rights, they have an incentive to grow the distributions over time because they get a bigger share of them. That's essentially what these things do. Um, the problem is the end game gets ugly because they you know, probably grew them, perhaps, not perhaps, I think it's fair to say many of them grew, grew the distri- distributions faster than they otherwise should have. They should have reinvested in some projects as we were becoming you know, this shale revolution. Um, so I think he's right on with that. It, but there are a number. The nice thing is, one, there are a number of companies that, as he notes and he has in his index, that don't have that problem. And, and we are seeing them, meaning the MLPs, get rid of uh, the the uh, or restructure, simplify, however you'd like to call it. Um, to uh, that's what the the industry says to simplify because it sounds nicer than restructuring. Um, but to get rid of those IDRs, so um, there is coming around. The problem is, I think. The one thing we talked about earlier, which is unfortunately for those people that are current shareholders, that restructuring generally comes with a large tax bill. Um, So while it's probably good long run, uh, existing long term shareholders are not all that happy. So now you've alienated a a great number of those holders. So that goes to why maybe sort of how you started framing the conversation is that we got MLP broad index is down 40, 35% over the last three, four years. And so it's very out of favor. And you think, Simon, it's because they're transitioning. They've alienated their basically core investor base, and now they need to find a new investor base. That's really is. That's exactly what's happened it is, is those long-term – they were some of the most long-term investors around. They were planning to hold MLPs, as Bill said, un, until they died. And leave That's them the best to their deal. Heads. It was the best deal. And the companies they invested in – Wanted a different set of investors. They basically said, you know what? We used to be for income-seeking buyers. Now we're a growth company. Sorry if that doesn't work for you. And so it's, it's really almost a tragedy for those buyers. But you take the world as it is. And, and so there's some fantastic opportunities created by that transition to a new broader investor base. And in fact, when you look at the companies that convert from MLPs to corporations, of course, they leave some unhappy investors behind, but those company management don't miss the MLP structure. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really what's happening is that the MLP structure is becoming a shrinking part of the energy infrastructure landscape. It's becoming a harder place to raise money. There'll always be some MLPs. They certainly still have the tax advantages, but they have too narrow an investor base to really be able to finance the growth projects that America needs to be independent. Now, you know, without mentioning specific funds or talking about a specific fund here, let's talk about the risk that you see building up in these because there's a lot of money tracking old school MLP indexes. And so you're you've you sort of commented that 
as these companies transition or MLPs transition for, to C-Corps, that some of these old style indexes, you know, they have a real problem and that there could be you know, real transition pains at some point in time, but the the, the fund managers don't, can't actually uh, do anything about it. Maybe talk, talk about that conundrum there. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting challenge because you have a sector whose index is shrinking. And so that's, that's very uncommon in finance, right? You very rarely see that. And so you have to sort of think through, what are the actual ramifications for funds that are invested in an MLP index? You've got a shrinking number of MLPs, and generally the MLPs that are leaving are the big ones. So you're having a shrinking number with a lower market cap. And so if you're a fund manager and you manage a fund that's invested purely in MLPs, You've got a few choices. None of them are really good. One is you can do nothing, and your investors are going to, over time, have to tolerate a more concentrated portfolio with smaller names. Um, You can decide to convert to be a a broader fund where you can invest in corporations as as well as MLPs. But one of the challenges with those MLP-dedicated funds is they themselves are taxed as corporations. And so they then be owning corporations in a fund structure which is itself taxed as a corporation delivering taxable returns, that won't work. And then the third option is to say, okay, we're just going to change uh, and we're going to get rid of the MLPs we have and we'll invest in broader American energy infrastructure. And that'll be a lot of MLPs for sale into a fairly uh, narrowly supported market. And so none of those are good options. It's a problem for the investor potentially. And so what we're telling people who are invested in MLP-dedicated funds is to think really carefully about whether it's in your best interest to stay invested in a sector that's shrinking. Maybe you'd be better off to participate in American energy independence by investing in a broad fund that owns corporations as well as as well as MLPs and, and, and will really benefit from that move to greater oil output. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Simon Lack of SL Advisors, Bill Stone of Stone Investment Partners. Um, and sort of on this energy independence theme, do we need to, to be a believer in this energy independence that we need rising oil prices to be a catalyst to, to be interested in this sector? Do you have a view on oil prices? Well, I think that uh, the industry showed that even when oil was briefly at $26, oil output dipped far less than anybody expected, which is really what caused OPEC to have to switch gears. I do think that oil and gas are different. I think that the long-term outlook for oil prices is gently higher. It's very hard to forecast from from day to day or week to week. But the short cycle nature of shale makes conventional projects more risky because shale producers can react to low prices by stopping drilling and protect themselves. If you've got a conventional project and oil goes down, you're kind of stuck. You couldn't hedge the risk because it's such a long-term project. And so you've seen a, a, a huge drop in, in, in CapEx, I mean, a, a trillion dollars of, of less investment over the last four years in conventional oil projects. So oil, I think, is likely to trend gently higher. Natural gas is a little different. Global trade in natural gas is increasing uh, very sharply. The U.S. is one of the uh, low-cost producers of natural gas. Although we produce a lot of natural gas here in Pennsylvania from the Marcellus Shale, we also produce natural gas as an associated product with oil. And and in West Texas, in the Marcellus, natural gas comes up with the oil. Nobody's drilling for natural gas, but it comes up anyway. A lot of challenges there in terms of takeaway capacity, how you deal with it. Um, But there's a lot of reasons to think natural gas is going to be abundant for a long time in the U.S. and elsewhere. And so 
I wouldn't be nearly so positive on the long-term price outlook for natural gas as, as for crude oil. And I think that one thing to keep in mind, at least, you know, Simon hit on it earlier, uh, in terms of if you're focused on the midstream area, which is essentially moving the products around, uh, the price is less of an issue, right? So what you care about is economic activity, because economic activity is generally going to drive having to move it around and also obviously the continuing production of those uh, of natural gas and oil in the U.S. Um, that's likely to continue to mean that they're going to want to use these pipes, right? Um, so I think, you know, again, to extremes, it becomes a problem. But as long as it, it's somewhere in there, it, you're pretty good. And I think he hits it right on the head with now the fact that before they had such long time frames for these projects, it was a lot scarier because they would just continue to have to work it, even though the cycle was going in the wrong direction. Now they can shut it down and bring it back a lot quicker, too. So when prices get to be a place that are, look attractive, they, they, bring, uh, they bring supply back on, which means you don't, maybe you don't have to worry as much as you used to do about oil prices going through the roof, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, this will be my famous last words because then I'll have to eat these some point. So, um, but, uh, but I think I'm going to at least say less worry. So I think that is an interesting part because the, that's the worst thing really is um, for all of us, right, is oil prices go through the roof. Essentially, it gets high enough. It shuts down economic activity or at least certainly crimps it heavily. That then slows down having to move it around, so it becomes problem it becomes problems everywhere throughout the global economy, really. So um, hopefully it actually makes us more robust as a global economy to have sure. this. And, you know, here's another, uh, another angle, is natural gas is a great ally for environmentalists, right? Everybody's an environmentalist. I care about the environment. And a lot of people will criticize fossil fuels because of global warming, but in fact, if you want to move to a world of renewables relying on solar and wind, it's not always sunny and windy. And you need natural gas to be there as the cleanest burning fossil fuel that's always available to be, for, to be there for peak times. In Germany, for example, where around 20% of electricity production is renewables, they produce electricity with more carbon emissions than we do in America. And you think, how is that possible? America, Germany believes they're a leader in this. And it's because their baseload capacity is coal. And in America, natural gas is the biggest source of electricity. Peak demand for electricity is twice a day at breakfast and dinner. The sun's pretty low, if not over the horizon at both times. And so if we're going to move to a world of clean energy, we're going to need natural gas to be part of that solution. And the environmentalists who, who truly embrace that are the ones who are going to be acting most clearly in the interests of a clean environment by making natural gas part of the environmental solution. Now, you've talked about this natural gas could at some point, given there's such an abundance in in where these new shells are being drilled, that the price could be like zero. Is that going to have a, sh- a, sh- a shift in our whole economy of where people locate production, where it's sort of cheaper to produce things, and then also just because the energy costs are down, and then also... How do we export this around the world? Is maybe we're talking about some of the dynamics yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're going to see, you are seeing now already in, in West Texas because natural gas comes up with the crude oil, and it's not specifically what they're looking for. They're struggling with enough takeaway capacity for that natural gas, and it is depressing the price, and that will stimulate demand. You know, we'll use more natural gas because of that. Uh, we're certainly exporting more. Around 75% of global trade in LNG, liquefied natural gas as it's called, is to Asia. 
And, and of course, we're exporting out of Louisiana. Chenier is the first operator of, of an LNG export facility. But one of the really cool things is so we send shipments of natural gas liquefied all over the world. But we sent two shipments last year to the United Arab Emirates in the Middle East, a place that you would think is awash in natural gas. And that's because we're really good at it. That's mm. because we produce it really cheaply. And so that's the really exciting story that's taking place in this country is the Shell Revolution is creating outcomes that nobody would have thought possible five years ago. What, what do you think the geopolitical and sort of global economic sort of macro conclusions from all this is? I mean, do you have any thinks about thoughts about how it impacts sort of high-level asset classes, currencies, interest rates, from this shift in how you know we were used to send our dollars abroad to buy oil, and now we might be receiving dollars as people buy our oil. I mean, I think the one thing we talked about earlier is it certainly allows us to put, when you go into the geopolitical, is put some pressure on some countries that are large oil producers that we probably couldn't have done before if we didn't think we were or did, weren't energy independent, right? We would have had to say, well, we're just going to have to suck it up because otherwise we throw our economy into the tank if they cut us off from oil. Now we don't really need Iran's oil. We, you know, Venezuela can hardly get oil out of the ground anyway right. now. But right. we certainly also, I mean, thank God that we have it because we probably would be worried about Venezuelan production. I remember back in the days when we were worried about Venezuelan production. Now, even though they're going, you know, they're circling the drain hole if they're not our already halfway down um they you know not that we don't care we care about the human suffering but the oil is not really anything i don't think we're worried about no i mean it gives us more choices clearly i mean we fought wars in the middle east in part because of oil and we'll still care about what happens in the middle east but we don't have quite the same exposure or sensitivity so it's just another example of where it's put in america in a in a stronger position than we've ever been before Talk a little bit about more about sort of SL Advisors, what you guys are focused on. So we talked about this Energy Independence Index. Um, and how do any other thoughts about the firm? How you guys are trying to attack the market through, through you know the different types of offerings you guys do? Yeah, I mean we we the index is something that we launched last year, and and we really felt that there was a need for something that was broader than what was already available. Uh, including corporations as, as, as well as partnerships. And so that's really why we created that. And we got really excited about the long-term opportunity after 2016 when OPEC really lost and had to switch gears and, and, and concede that America was always going to be part of the solution. Um, we love the environmental aspect of it. I think that uh, electric vehicles is something that people talk about a lot. And what's the threat of EVs to oil? And when you know when you look at uh, demand for hybrids and electric vehicles in the United States, demand actually peaked in 2014 as a percentage of new sales. And so, it's fine if somebody wants to buy a hundred thousand dollar Tesla to make a statement, but it's a very different market to sell thirty thousand dollar cars to people. It's going to have to make economic sense for them. And so, all of these things are lining up. I mean, I, I think energy independence in America. The Shell Revolution is the most exciting thematic investment to follow for at least a decade. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's got a very, very good long-term future. And when you look at other sectors of the market, most everything else is expensive. It's very hard for investors to look around at other sectors and say, oh, this looks cheap. Historically, this is attractively valued. And as Bill pointed out, you've got a sector here that's 35% off the highs of four years ago, 
where there's very understandable reasons why the investors are, are, are sort of put off because of all of the simplifications, tax consequences, the shift from an income generating to a growth model. But for those people who are coming in today, they're buying things at a big discount from where they were four years ago when the tailwinds are probably more positive than they've ever been. And so I really think it's just one of the most compelling opportunities out there. No, it's a very interesting dynamic. I mean, I, even when you just look at the, the just the S&P 500 and the energy sector there, um, I think there's you know almost no sectors that are down on a 10-year basis besides for energy. Right. So, now, this right. is a different set of companies that you're talking about, but that sort of speaks to just the dynamics we've had for the last decade. So it, it does get my value investing. It should do. It's, being it's spiked been, up. It's been very out of favor, and the businesses are doing fine. I was, I was in the MLP conference last week in Orlando, and one company after another is telling me how business is great. They've got new plans here. Volumes are up. Uh, I mean, one interesting number is, uh, you know, crude oil has a different price, different parts of the country, and, and WTI, West Texas Intermediate, it's priced at the hub in Cushing in Oklahoma. So if you have crude oil in Midland in West Texas from the Permian, it's worth a different price. And the difference is probably going to be the cost of transportation, which is usually two to three bucks a barrel because that's what it costs to put it through a pipeline. Today, the difference is $12, much more than the pipeline cost. And it's there because the pipelines are full. There's more oil being mm. produced than there is takeaway capacity to move that crude oil. And so... That's great if you're a pipeline owner. You're really able to take advantage of that on that part of capacity where you can charge market rates. And so there's a lot of really exciting things like that going on. We're our final countdown here. Bill, Simon, uh, thank you for joining us in our studio today. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks. It's been an interesting conversation on oil, energy, infrastructure, and it is, is, it's been really it, – Simon's framed it as – there's not a lot of places you can be as excited about the productivity enhancements we're beginning in the U.S. economy. So thank you both for that background. Um, you've been listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.